Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. So it is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you please say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. Our call to worship today, we have two quotes. The first is by Ralph Waldo Emerson. To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. And our second quote is by Marilyn Monroe. Imperfection is beauty, madness is genius, and it's better to be absolutely ridiculous than absolutely boring. People are curious about what holds this congregation together. We don't have a creed that we say together every Sunday. We don't have a list of beliefs that you have to um, affirm. We have principles that we agree to affirm and promote. Those are some of the things that hold us together. And we have an association of congregations, the Unitarian Universalist Association, and that's one of the things that holds us together. But in this congregation, one of the things that builds community here is that we follow our mission. And you all wrote the mission statement, then you wrote it on the wall, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our reading today is from Henry David Thoreau Walden, or Life in the Woods. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. Now is the time during our service when we breathe deeply together. where we put our feet on the floor and fill our bodies with air and feel it coming in and out of our bodies. We're grateful for the air, which gives us life. We're grateful for the opportunity to feel stillness. We are told by the wisdom of ages that it is in this still place 
that our spirits grow strong and sturdy. Let us breathe together and enter into the wise silence. That music and some of our other music today was written by a woman named Hildegard of Bingen in the 11th century. She's one of the people I'm going to be talking about today as I talk about folks who didn't quite fit into the families in which they were born. Most of us know people who feel like they were born into the wrong family or the wrong place or the wrong time, the wrong state or the wrong city within a state. And we might be an engineer who was born into a family of poets, or we might be an introvert born into a family of extroverts, or we might be a, a, an artist born into a family of accountants, or a teacher born into a family of Fortune 500 high-powered business folks. And, you know, we might have, the person who, who didn't fit in their family might have been loved, might have been tolerated, uh, might have been helped. But if you don't fit in the family in which you were born, there's always this little sense of your folks, your, your mom and dad or the people who are taking care of you, being a little bit mystified by you. They don't really get you. And that can feel lonely it can be an odd experience. And at the worst case, if you're born into a place or a family or if you're in a peer group where you don't fit, then you can get teased or bullied and um, the other ducklings can call you clumsy and awful and faggot, things like that. It's terrible. And so there's an awful feeling. Sometimes kids like that, fantasize that they were secretly adopted by this family, that they don't really, really, they don't really come from these people, and that maybe they were left on the doorstep by a desperate but beautiful artist who who couldn't raise them, or a, a desperate but beautiful engineer who... who <laughs> left them on the doorstep of a family of poets and... I've always loved the books uh, by Madeline Langle. One of them is called A Wrinkle in Time. And in it, some children are meeting each other for the first time, talking about their families. And um, one, Charles Wallace, says, well, what kind of family do you come? are you trying to get away from? The kid, says, the kid named Calvin says, oh, they all have runny noses. I'm a sport. Charles, grinning, says, so am I. I don't mean in basketball. Charles Wallace says, neither do I. Calvin said, I mean in biology. Charles Wallace says, a change in gene, Charles Wallace is five, a change in gene resulting in the appearance in the offspring of a character which is not present in the parents, but which is potentially transmissible to its offspring. Calvin, what gives? I was told you couldn't talk. <laughs> Sometimes 
you are born into or you are adopted into a family that you fit beautifully. And sometimes there are parts of you that fit into the family, and sometimes there are parts of you that don't. And sometimes it's a relief and a joy to hear that there is such a thing as a sport, even in biology, that you have just different... You could be part of this family, but you just have something. There's something that's happened to your genes that that transmuted and that you can pass on to your own offspring, but um, that you are your own thing. And it's true for most of us. We are our own thing. But most of us, I mean, I've turned out pretty much like the people who raised me, except, you know, for being gay and except for being Unitarian. (laughs) But apart from those little things, I'm exactly like them. I remember the feeling of growing up Presbyterian and the whole, um, the way I was taught about God's love was, and this is just a Presbyterian thing, and I apologize to those of you who will be shocked by this, but they say, um, God loves you in spite of who you are. God forgives you for being the way you are. Um, And that started to wear on my nerves. And I felt that my, my, my church was loving me in spite of who I was (laughs) too. And, um, and when I started coming to the Unitarian Universalist church, I found people who thought I was cool and who loved me because of, who I was. And that was a lovely experience, and I wanted more of it. Now, Hildegard, the one who wrote some of the music that we've heard this morning, she was dedicated to the church when she was a baby because she was the 10th child. And in that era, the 10th child of a family was the family's tithe to the church. And so she was dedicated to the church. She was going to be a nun from the time she was a baby. And um, when she was three, she started seeing visions of luminous objects, but she didn't tell anybody about that. Um, She was dedicated to the church and given to this woman who was an anchorite, which means a person who is kind of living a living dead person, not a zombie, but a person who has been given a funeral, they've been given last rites, and then they're put into a little room where they live ostensibly by themselves, and there's a little window through which they can see the other people in the convent, but they live in a little um, bumped out room that was attached to the wall of the abbey. And so they're in there, and she was apprenticed to this woman who lived in one of those uh, hermitages. Her name was Jutta, and um, she was the apprentice of this woman. And so this woman wasn't really alone because Hildegard was there as a young girl. And Jutta started teaching Hildegard. And Hildegard was always self-conscious about her education because she said Jutta was a you know not a very learned woman. And so, but Hildegard was a self-taught learned woman, and she started writing, and she started talking about her visions. And um, she started writing music. And then she started writing about cosmology and 
that was causing a stir. Other parents heard about her, and they sent their daughters to live. So there were about 12 young girls living together in this little room. So that was their convent, where they had this little room that was attached to the wall of the abbey with a a door, apparently, that they could go in and out, and a little window, and Jutta never went out. But I don't know if the other girls did or not. I think they did. Hildegard kept having these visions, and she confided her visions to Jutta and to this monk named Volmar, and the monk named Volmar became her lifelong secretary. But when she was 42 years old, she had a vision that changed the course of her life. She had a vision of God in which she suddenly understood everything. She suddenly was enlightened and understood everything. She says, It came to pass when I was 42 years and seven months old that the heavens were opened and a blinding light of exceptional brilliance flowed through my entire brain. And so it kindled my whole heart and breast like a flame, not burning but warming. And suddenly I understood the meaning of the expositions of all the books. But although I heard and saw these things because of doubt and low opinion of myself, and because of the diverse sayings of men, I refused for a long time a call to write, not out of stubbornness, but out of humility, until weighed down by a scourge of God, I fell into a bed of sickness. So this was a time when anybody who wrote anything unusual could be thrown into jail and brought up on charges. So she hesitated, but there was a pope at that time, Pope Eugenius, who um, was a pretty enlightened man, and he sent word to encourage her in her writings. So she was encouraged to write about her visions, and she was encouraged to write music, and she became the anchoress after Jutta died of this convent, and she moved them out uh, of the tiny little room within the place where they were, and they built their own place, and it had unusual features like water that flowed into the convent through pipes, and um, she engineered a good many improvements in the lives of the nuns. Now, the other people were mad that they had left because she was quite famous, but that's another part of the story. So this is a child who was odd in her family and had to keep her visions to herself. And she may, um, you know, if a modern medical person looked at that um, description of the numinous and the visions and the warming through her breast and uh, they may diagnose something. Um, some people think that the nuns who had visions were maybe uh, suffering from migraines or maybe um, had a kind of an epilepsy. They don't know. But in that day and age, they honored them as visions of God. And she suddenly understood a lot of things in this vision, which sounds like Satori, which um, in Asian religions is instant enlightenment. Now, another ugly duckling in her family, this is a little bit of Unitarian history for you. Another ugly duckling in her family was born to the Alcotts. Now, Bronson Alcott was an educator and a very self-confident man who thought of himself as fairly angelic. Um, 
Add to that that he was blonde, and he thought that blonde people were more angelic than people with darker hair. Um, He had so many educational theories. He had a very um, famous school in Boston, but one of the things it was famous for was being shut down because he insisted on talking to the children about sex education. Um, And this was the 1830-something. Bronson Alcott had uh, some daughters who were blonde, and then he had Louisa May. Louisa May Alcott had dark hair. And so he thought it meant that she was more savage in temperament than he, in fact, he called her possessed. Um, Her mother also had dark hair. He writes, two devils, as yet I am not quite divine enough to vanquish, the mother fiend and her daughter. He he said Louisa May Alcott was a wild horse of a girl. And she would say, yes, it's because I was a horse in a former life. The family was... um, very poor, and uh, they ate only uh, vegetables and fruits. And um, so she has written that they were always hungry. He thought of her as willful, and he thought it was his job to inculcate in her, because he was an educator, he wanted to inculcate in her the divinities that he himself enjoyed. Um, even though she was not as divine as he or the other daughters, since she wasn't blonde, but um, she she could be taught to struggle with her inner uh, willfulness. And so he would um, constantly talk to her about how um, bad she was and how she should do what he said rather than what she wanted to do. And her whole life, really, as a child, was a struggle between her and her dad's view of what she should be. And he had all these educational little moral experiments that he would do on the children. Like um, he, uh, her sister Anna was in a room with Louisa, and he put an apple out there, and he knew both girls loved apples, as did he. And he said to them, that's my apple, don't touch it. And then he left. And he came back, and of course Louisa had eaten the apple. And, And Anna apologized for even having thought about eating the apple. I'm so sorry, Father. I had a moment of weakness, and I thought about eating the apple, but there's the wild horse of a girl just chomping away. Even her writing, she did it in secret at first, because writing by women in those days was seen as a little bit evil. Women expressing themselves was pretty dangerous in those days, and it was um, a scandal if a woman were to write or to speak. And even now, we hear that if a woman speaks out, some people feel she is shouting. So, um, it must be nice to go around feeling angelic and to think that anything that is different from you must be bad. Um, But that is how she grew up. But you know how she ended up. She ended up... um, working as a healer during the Civil War, and she ended up being a writer of many wonderful books. And all of us who read the books liked The Wild Horse of a Girl the best. Did we not?
I didn't like being named Meg while I was reading that because Meg was a sweet, saccharine. I wanted to change my name to Joe, but I was too sweet. Here's the deal. There is a force in nature that demands that something which is a seed or something which is born grows into what it actually is. Does that make sense? And no amount of will can influence that much. If you're an acorn, you're going to grow into an oak. There's just no way for you to become a willow, no matter how much the other willows go. My goodness, you're not very flexible, are you? No, because you're an oak. There is no way that a child who's going to grow up to be uh, divine, I don't mean like Bronson Alcott, I mean like the drag queen in Baltimore, divine is going to be a normal little boy. His parents, fortunately, kind of indulged him and let him dress up in girls' clothing and be wild. But he was not like the other children. He grew into himself. How many people have been... uh, suppressed as they try to will themselves not to be who they are, how many people have been elevated and set free by folks around them celebrating who they are and letting them be who they are? And some people are just confused by it their whole lives, and they try to be who they are a little bit and... Satisfy everybody else a little bit. But I think one of the reasons that we all like the story of the ugly duckling so much is that even from the beginning, he wasn't a duckling. He was a signet. And he had just fallen in among the ducklings. And I worked as a therapist for many, many years, and I saw many people who were ashamed and perplexed that they could not fit with the other people that they were supposed to fit with. I remember my experience um, being in the Junior League. Now, I know that's hard for some of you to imagine. But I had friends who were 15 years older than I. They were my dearest friends, and they said, Meg, at some point we are going to die and you will be alone, and you need friends your own age. And so we are going to put you up for the Junior League. Just go for a little while if you can. And so I did for a little while, and they were lovely people. Um, but I would sit in the meetings and I would feel like that illustration of Alice in Wonderland where her feet grew until they banged on the wall and her head grew until it banged on the ceiling. And I, I just felt like I don't fit in here. And it was a strong feeling. You know how, when you're in a place where you don't fit, the feeling is almost like an emergency. That's the force in you that is driving you to turn into who you are. It is worth paying attention to. I love the quotation from Antoine Saint-Exupéry where he says, the seed haunted by the sun never fails to find its way between the stones and the ground. May we all be seeds haunted by the sun until we find the people with whom we fit and the places where no one belongs more than we do. 
It is my hope that this will be such a place for all of us. Will you say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Sing with me if you care to. I know this rose will open. I know my fear will burn away. I know my soul will unfurl its wings. I know this rose will open. Go in peace.